0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we are in Acts chapter 2, even though I told you to open to First John 1. But Acts 2, we're doing a two-part series on just verse 14 about having the experience of what's happened in Acts take place where everyone, if you remember, the Spirit came upon them. They were filled, which is that unique divine empowerment of the Spirit. And as a result of that, they began to speak in other languages, foreign languages, languages that the other Jews that were there at the temple on the day of Pentecost could understand because they had traveled from all around the world, and these were people who spoke various languages, and now they could hear it. And these were people who were from Galilee speaking these languages, which is something that they knew was not possible. As a result, people are wondering what's going on. They're thinking maybe uh, they're drunk. And so Peter stands up, and he raises his voice, and he begins to preach in verse 14. And before we got into that sermon that he preached, the very first sermon that he gave to not only those who were believers, but to many who were not believers on that day where the church was born... Before we got into the very essence of what he was saying, I wanted to talk to you about how God saves, God's method in saving, and it is through preaching. And so we see Peter here standing, beginning to preach. This is a man who was once an argumentative man, a man who was filled with fear. Now he is filled with boldness. And in the midst of the crowd, he begins to expound the Holy Scripture with the goal to point them all to Jesus Christ. But what we want to see today is that the method that he was using is that of preaching. We want you, I want you to come to certain conclusions with regard, regard to how are people converted or how are they saved. Now, last week, I gave you two out of three key reasons for the centrality and the necessity of preaching. And today, I want to give you the final one. The last week, though, we dealt with that grim reality in which every human finds himself. And what I said is that there were impediments, which is really a nice word for massive, insurmountable barriers that every human faces, and sadly, they're not even aware of. We saw that the sinfulness of man is full and complete, that it captures every aspect of every human. It affects your body, it affects your mind and your will, so that if you strip away all the aspects of a human being to get to the very core of him, you find that it is not light or goodness, but it is darkness And sin. And therefore, by nature, you and I live under the dominion and the power of sin, that we sin because we are sinners, not the other way around. We tend to be a type of people that emphasize what we do I've had enough talks over the years with people, I'm sure you have too, and perhaps out of your own mouth, where when we're talking about sin, that we tend to focus on what is done rather than what we are. But the scripture flips it around and says the whole reason that you and I are sinners, the whole reason why we sin rather, is because we are by nature sinners. Sinners. And because we're all sinners, we end up fooling ourselves into thinking that we're quite fine and acceptable when we are not, because we're all sinners. And so one of the illustrations I use all the time is this thing about gunk. And some of you know it. Many of you who have been here any length of time have heard it, and some of you have never heard it. So let me share it to you again. I developed this illustration back when I was a jail chaplain in L.A., because I was in what was called the Supermax Jail, and that was where the worst of the worst were kept. And what was interesting, as I got to know these people who were mass murderers, rapists, and such, is that they all looked at the action. They all looked at their sin. They all were very much aware. I mean, they're all in there, and they all know what they did, and most of them understood that they were guilty of those crimes and that they were going to go away for the rest of their lives, but all they would focus on is what they did, and it was fascinating that even within the supermax, there were gradations of evil in their mind. So the child molester was the lowest of the low, and everyone else felt pretty good about themselves that they weren't that person. And then the next step up was the rapist, and then the murderer of old people, and so on and so forth. And so when you would talk to them, they would talk about how I've done this and I've done that, but I haven't done those things. In other words, their focus is upon what they did or did not do. And so my question was, how do I take a person? Many of them were not well-educated. Many of them had uh, struggled with reading and everything else. So how am I going to deal with this concept of sin? And I came up with this, and it always seems to work well. And so I'm going to pretend that I take you and And uh, you are dunked into this barrel of what I'm just going to call gunk. It's smelly, it's vile, it's kind of oily-like, and it covers you completely from head to toe. It really is a disgusting thing. It smells worse than anything you've ever smelled. And when you touch something, it becomes, in the technical sense, gunky. And so when you touch anything in your house, you walk across the carpet, whatever it might be, all you do is leave this smelly, gunky footsteps and handprints everywhere. So you decide that you're going to wash it off, and you get in the shower, and you take the shower, and now it's splashing around, and the walls of the shower are getting gunky, the floor is getting gunky, it's going down into the drain, it's getting gunky. But this stuff is magical. So as quickly as it comes off, it replaces itself. So there's never even a second in which you are clean. You cannot get it off you, but it goes everywhere. Let's say you're a man and you're married. And so you come out of the shower, you grab a towel, and you wipe yourself down trying to get it off. Now the towel is all filled with gunk, but you're still the gunky. Hasn't changed what bit. Your wife happens to be in the front room and she's folding laundry and you, because you want to love her and and help and be an encouragement, you say, I'm going to go and help her. So you walk across making gunky footsteps and you pick up the clean laundry and you begin to fold it. And she begins to yell at you because now the the laundry is all gunky. It's vile. But let's make this even more magical and that it sucks into the very pores of your being. So that now, not only is the exterior of you gunky, but it goes right down into the core of your being to the very thoughts themselves. That even your thoughts are covered in the gunk. And in fact, the fountainhead from which your thoughts spring, your intentions, that that too is gunky. Your dreams are gunky, your words are gunky, everything in you is gunky. And so you look at your wife and you're trying to say the right words and they are the right words. You say I love you. But it comes out covered in the gunk. And she she looks at you with revulsion because you said the right words but they're covered in filth. Now if it was just you, you would be very much aware of your gunkiness. And the rest of the people would. But the hard reality is that all of humanity is that way. All of us are gunky. All of us have this sin. That's all it is. That's at the very core of our being. And as a result, even when we do good things, it's covered in the filth. And the intentions of doing those good things are covered in that filth. And there is but one being who is not that way, and that is God. And so at the end of our life, having labored so hard to do good things and to impress God and to show him how serious we are about him, we have all of these gifts that we have arranged and and we present to him and say, see, see what I've done for you. And all he sees is the filth and the gunk of what we are as sinners. That is the reality that everyone has. Whether you like that or agree with that, that's what the scripture declares, and that's what we spent last week looking at. Along with that, though, we saw a second reality that presses upon the whole of humanity as a group and as, in, and, and as individuals, and that is that on top of that, in, in possible barrier of our sinfulness is the blinding work of Satan himself. We found that the whole of humanity lies in the lap of the evil one, that we literally walk under and in the power and the influence of Satan. So again, we have people and they're like, well, I don't think I'm that bad. Well, that's fine. But you are literally a gunk factory. You're a factory of sin and you live and function and breathe under the will and power of Satan himself. And so he blinds us, the scripture says, to the beauty and the glory of Christ. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians, if you recall. Elsewhere, the Bible describes us as blind due to our sinfulness. But on top of that, Satan doubly blinds us. And so we believe his lies, we believe his distractions, we believe his tricks. And you all know what I'm talking about. As you share the gospel with people, you are always seeing people deflected and distracted, sometimes just outright offended by what you say. And that's just simply their own sin and Satan himself at work. Some of the deceptions that people will believe is that some will say, well, I just don't think there's a God. I'm just going to make him go away in my mind. Even though your own heart knows that that's not true, our eyes behold the mysteries of this universe and of creation. We see the complexity that is built into the most simplest of creation, and our hearts know that there is a God, but we say, no, there's not. Others, we say, well, we believe that there's a God. We're willing to consider that there's a God. We're we're much better than that person, but that we conclude that he is uncaring and uninterested in us. He's far away. Or we determine that there is a God, but he is an evil, hateful God, and that there is no way that we would grant him our love or obedience. Or we conclude that there is a God and that believing following Jesus as Lord would restrict our joy? How many of you have sat, perhaps at some point in your life where people were calling you to come and submit yourself to Christ and you were saying no because you thought it would take away all the things you loved, all the things you delighted in, that, that following Christ was a life of rules that would rob us of joy? Whatever it is. There's a countless number of deceptions that we will believe that Satan will feed us. We just will buy it because our own heart is already broken and dead in sin. And so the scripture says that anyone who does not know and love Jesus Christ is found to be a believer of lies because their heart loves darkness rather than life and light. So that, that's an essence of what we talked about last week. One aspect I did not cover, I want to cover very quickly by way of still in the introduction, and that is what I call the hangover of sin. The hangover of sin. This is with regard to those of you here who are Christians. When you're a non-Christian, you're dead in your sins. You're not sick, you're literally dead in your sins. But as a Christian, you're alive in Christ, but we have this hangover of sin. And so this is the one who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been forgiven of his sin. But though we have been saved from the power of sin, we have not been saved from the presence of sin. That will only come when we either die and are in the presence of Christ in heaven, or he returns. But either way, until that time comes, you and I still deal with the presence of sin, both on the outside of us and even within. The Bible talks about that as being your flesh. If you have a decent translation, sometimes a translation will say sin nature, which is fine as well. It is this reality, though, that we still carry this propensity to do what is not right. And so Romans 7 talks about that. Paul talks about, though he desires to do that which he ought to do, instead he does what he ought not to do. We all know that feeling, right? We all understand those days where we're like, seriously, Matt? How long have you been walking with Christ and you're doing that? Seriously? That is the result of that flesh, that sin hangover. And then in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he reminds us that the world and the world system is constantly pushing on us so as to conform us into its image rather than in the image of Christ. And if we don't push back against it, we will begin to do this slide into sin. And the way that we push back against it, he says, is by daily renewing our mind with the word of God. For some of you, you understand that. You've seen it in your life where God just does this amazing work to consistently remind you of his sufficiency, of his grace, and of your need for him just because you've made it your habit to be in the word. And some of you, you still will not believe us when we say you need to be in the word. You need to be thinking about the word and reading the word and doing what the word says and praying back to God what the word says. So that you can push back against what the world is pushing on you. Well, first John chapter one is actually helpful helpful in this. So hopefully you've turned there. Let me get there myself. In 1 John 1, 8 through 10, John says in verse 4 that his joy is not yet complete. And the reason it's not yet complete is that the Christians, the readers, are not living as they ought. And as a result, he instructs them, like any good pastor or shepherd would do. And in instructing them, he also instructs you and I. And he makes it clear in verses 5 and 6 that a lifestyle of sin is not indicative of life in Christ. He makes it very clear in verses 5 and 6 that one cannot continue in the unbroken sin and also claim Christ. But then in verse 8, he says this, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar And the word is not in us. So he says, if you are one who says that you have not or do not sin, then you are a liar and that you are deceiving yourselves. So the reality is that everyone in this room, as a Christian, I know for a fact is a sinner and you sin. I know that because the scripture tells me that. Not just because of my own experience. That you're looking at a man behind this pulpit who is a sinner. And any of you who do not say that you're a sinner, you're just lying to yourself. And you're lying to everyone else. Most importantly, you're living a lie before God. So what is the answer? Well, the answer is not try to pretend you're not a sinner. Not try to make excuses. But rather confess. Verse 9, you're going to confess your sin, right? Because there you find forgiveness. The mark of a true believer is not that he doesn't sin, but that when he sins, he freely goes back to Christ and confesses, which is simply to agree with God that what is sin is sin. I say this a lot. Parents all the time are frustrated with their children, and I understand why, because they're children and they can be downright obnoxious at times, just like you were when you were a child. And you can get frustrated. You can begin to think that somehow they're, they're the problem and that they, they pretend like they're not doing things wrong. And my question that I always ask parents is, when was the last time you confessed your sin to them? I just ask you, men, women, young or old, I ask you, when was the last time you spoke to your child about your sin? When did you say, Forgive me? My attitude was wrong. My words were wrong. My heart was wrong. Do you reflect that? Or are you the liar? Are you the liar who says to your children, I do not sin? The cure is simple, we confess our sin, and then in verse 1 of chapter 2, we have something that we always have to remember, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. That's what he wants, is we want you to grow in holiness, and he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. His desire is that you not sin. That's my desire that you not sin. Hopefully, it's your desire is that you do not sin, but the reality is you will sin. And when you sin, you confess. You agree that what you did was wrong, and you know that you have a perfect advocate on your side, Jesus our Lord. And so even as Christians, we find the battle to be a very real and constant battle. Satan is hurling his evil at us like fiery darts, He seeks to disrupt us. He seeks to divert us from looking to Jesus and his forgiveness every day. That's what he's doing to you. If you are not given to confession, you are listening to Satan and his lies because Satan will tell you, don't confess. Why are you confessing something that you've confessed 10,000 other times? Stop confessing. You're just boring God. And God says, if you sin, confess your sin. How many times? Until you die. And so what happens is when we start to listen to Satan and we allow our sin to take control of us and we submit to it as a Christian, what happens is pride comes into our heart and our life. We think that we have it all together because we're not like that person over there. That we don't need somehow to have fellowship with one another. We don't need to feed upon the word of God. We don't need to pray. We don't need to sing. We don't need to help and encourage one another because we're full of pride. This sinfulness in our hearts also leads to pride for the preachers in the pulpit where they begin to abandon the only tool that God has given to them to rightly battle sin in their own hearts and in your hearts. And that tool is the light of truth or the word of God. Only the word of God enlightens the heart of man and only the word of God pushes back the darkness. And when you show in your life and actions that you don't need the word of God, it shows that you have bought into a lie. And when the pulpit decides it will not preach the word, it shows that the preacher has bought into a lie. Because the only tool that God has given to us, and that's the point of this message, the only tool that is able to take a heart dead in sin and make it alive in Christ, and the only tool that can take a saved heart and conform it into the image of Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And so today what we will do is shift from the problem to the means of salvation. Why? does Peter get up and preach? Why? Why didn't he go and just sit there and have a dialogue? Why didn't he have a conversation with the people? Why didn't he just start inviting them over to the house for dinner and and maybe they could find an opportunity to talk? Why did he stand and preach? Because it is the preaching of the word that is the means of God to convert sinners and to bring maturity to those who are in Christ. So, with that in mind, we have to come to grips then, beloved, with this reality of preaching. And we must see that it is of the utmost necessity, or you and I will be led astray quite easily, that God has actually given us the ultimate tool for pushing back darkness that threatens every believer, and the ultimate tool that saves sinners. The only question is, do you believe it? And something you see throughout the Bible, listen, the tool is the word of God. It will always and only be that. It is not, now hear me on this, do not daydream here, not the word of God and philosophy. Not the word of God and marketing. Not the word of God in social issues. It is the word of God and only the word of God that both converts the soul and builds God's people up. Into maturity. Now go with me to Deuteronomy 32. (coughs) Excuse me. Deuteronomy 32, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible. I want you to see how this is described, and that's what we'll do for the rest of this time. In 32, verses 44 to 47, with Moses, it says, Then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song. In the hearing of the people, he with Joshua, the son of Nun, When Moses was finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully. So parents, take note of that. That's your job. Which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is what? Your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Moses is about ready to die. He is not going to be allowed into the promised land, and he's finishing his final message to the people. And he has his word that came to Israel from God, he describes it as the law, which is not just simply a series of rules, but rather it is the rule by which God's people are to arrange themselves under, that this is how we live in light of who God is. Now, that's a question I would ask you. Do you believe that? And if so, is it obvious within your choices and in in your actions? In other words, are you ordering your life in accordance to God's revealed will, what he has given in the word? That's all Moses is saying. He's not saying to them, hey, do whatever you think would be best. Rather, he has given the fullness of God's revelation at that point, and now he tells the people, go and do it. Go and do that. And not only for you to go and do it, but your children are to do it. Let me ask you this, parents. Do you train your children daily to walk in the ways of the Lord? Do you train them instead to be unbelievers? I would argue that many Christian parents inadvertently teach their children to be unbelievers by the choices being made. What is the atmosphere of your home that your children breathe every day? Is it literally the word of God? What is the atmosphere that they're breathing elsewhere? For Moses, he says, here are the words. It is the law of God. You arrange yourself under them and you teach your children to do it and God will bless you in light of it. It's just the word, no other tricks, nothing else. Just simply do what God shows you to do. Now go over to Psalm 19, a a well-known psalm. We've preached out of this many a time. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14. It does your pastor's heart good to hear you turning in your Bible. I thank you for that. In Psalm 19 verses 7 to 14. Now, the first part of Psalm 19 in verses 1 through 6 is talking about what's called natural revelation. Those of you taking the FOF class, that's something you're learning this week, right? That there's two ways that God has revealed himself, one through natural revelation and second through special revelation. Natural revelation is that which is your own heart, your conscience tells you, that ability that we know that there's something right and something wrong. And then second, as we look upon the way creation is, that we can see attributes of who God is, that he is a God of order, that he is a God of complexity, that he is a God of simplicity, that he is a God of power. All of these different aspects, if you think about how nature is put together, that's all natural revelation. And the psalmist says that the heavens are crying out every day the glory of God, but it cannot convert your soul. It cannot save you. In verses 7 to 14, though, we have what is now special revelation. Now he turns it to the law of the Lord. And he has all kinds of different words for the law or the word. It's the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, and the judgments. All of these are just synonyms for the word of God. That's all it means. But he says and shows that that the word of God is so powerful that nothing in nature, nothing in us can do these things. Only the law of the Lord, only the word of God can restore a soul. Only the word of God can make the simple person wise. Only the word of God can cause your heart that's broken to rejoice again. Only the word of God can enlighten your eyes or your mind. Only the word of God endures forever. So much so, he says, it's more desirable than gold. Nothing in philosophy will ever do this. Nothing in psychology will ever do this. Nothing in your laws and regulations that man makes up will ever accomplish these things. I would argue that some of you need to simply stop drinking from broken wells or cisterns. Cisterns like psychology that keeps telling you to understand what's wrong with you or what's wrong with other people in terms and in ways that the word of God does not agree with. All of us have got to come at some point to a point in our thinking where we decide what has God given to us? that converts the soul. What makes a heart pure? What causes a broken heart to rejoice? What is it? Is it a pill or is it the word? Is it this therapy or that therapy or is it the word? Our nation is literally drowning with alternative voices telling you it's this or that. And I am here to tell you, no, it is the word of God. And you have to conclude one way or the other, which one it is. There is no middle ground on this. All of the Psalms, Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is nothing but an, an exulting in the glory and the sufficiency of the word of God. So that the psalmist says that the word is a lamp. Unto my feet. What is shining forward as you walk forward? What is it that you use to guide you as you live? When you're thinking about how you're going to respond to your wife or your husband, when you think about how you're going to respond to your governing officials or your, your boss, how you're going to look at your children or how you're going to view children in general, what, what is it? What guides you, beloved? What is the light? that you shine on that, it must be the Word. Go over to Romans chapter 1 now, a passage that we all know. Romans chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and then Romans. So in the New Testament, verse 16 Paul says in verse 15 that he is eager to preach the gospel. He wants to come and preach the gospel to the people in Rome. Why? For this reason in verse 16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for or unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. Why would there you look at them and say, why would you be ashamed? Why would you be ashamed of the gospel? And I would look at you, and I would say this kindly, because I certainly have been there many a time myself, but have you not felt that shame? Has there not been a time where you're looking at a person, and you know they're not a Christian, and you withhold the gospel? Where your stomach gets tight, right? Right? where you start to get nervous. (coughs) Maybe you keep sharing a certain name in your small group. Pray for so-and-so. She's my friend. She needs Christ. And they're praying for her. And God gives you many an opportunity to be with your friend, but you never get around to actually open your mouth. Why? Matt, I suggest, is because you're ashamed of the gospel. It is actually very common for us to be that way. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Why? Why is he not ashamed? Because it is the power of God. This shame that we feel about the gospel on the Christian side of it is very common. Because let's face it, it is a very weak sounding gospel. We're going to talk about some guy that they've never met who is God, in human flesh, who goes on a cross and deals with sin, he is a perfect sacrifice. But now we got to convince the person that they're in fact, they're sinners under the wrath of God, that they need someone to die for them. Then we're going to say that on the third day that he literally rose from the dead, and you can watch people's face, and they're like, "You really believe that?" I remember uh, at uh, one of my jobs in LA, uh, a guy found my Bible. Uh, I would bring it and just read it through uh, during the slope times there. And um, he found my Bible and he was just reading it randomly. He came across a miracle in the Old Testament of an axe head floating. You know which one I'm talking about? And he he looked at me with absolute disgust. He's like, "You actually believe that?" And for a split second, I'm like, "Oh!" And then I'm like, "Heck with this!" No, I said, "I do." He's like, "You're an idiot." And that was the end of that. The hard reality is is that we feel that shame. It is a weak thing. Why don't we have powerful expressions? Why don't we see amazing things? And that's what we tend to do. We want miracles. Oh, if only God would do this, if only God would do that. Jesus looked at the Pharisees who said, give us a sign. Give us a sign so that we may know that you are the Messiah, the Christ. Let us know. He says, I have given you signs, and you do not believe. And the reason you do not believe is because you are of your father, Satan. The thing that God has given to us to bring to the world, beloved, is the word of God, the gospel, and it looks shameful. And you have to decide whether it is or not. And then understand that the people who will listen to you will think it's shameful as well, until it's not shameful. Until that moment when the Spirit of God so works in their life that what they thought was stupid and what they thought was restrictive and what they thought was weak becomes life. And they understand Many will enter hell for eternity, doubting and resisting and arguing against the truth of the gospel. How many will not and cannot see that it is Jesus who destroys sin, Satan, and death on the cross, and that he rose again? How many? How many will go to the grave saying, I will think about this, I will consider it, but I'm not so sure I agree with it. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it. We are not the ones who determine our end. Some of you are saying, I I, I believe this, but I want to believe it in secret. And the Bible won't let you, will it? That's why I announced the baptisms for Easter. For you, if you are going to profess and claim Christ as your Lord, that means you must make a public declaration that he is your Lord, and it is done in your baptism. The gospel is not philosophy. It's not rational arguments. It is simply the gospel of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And the Bible says it is the power of God, God's power. That same power that destroys nations and lifts up others, the same power that holds Orion in its place. Turn off your phones. The same power that holds Orion in its place and places doors around the seas, enclosing them in. It's the power that holds back the rain and the power that releases it wherever he wishes. That power is found in the gospel. That he is the one who brings forth life and death. It is in him and him alone that all things hold together and find their purpose and meaning. And that power is resident in the gospel and in the word. And so Paul says, when tempted to speak something other than the gospel, he says, no, I can't. What about you? When you are tempted to talk about anything but the gospel, what do you say? When you're looking at a person who's discouraged, frightened, frustrated, they're heading toward destruction, what is your message? It must only be the gospel. My question is is that settled in your mind Go to 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 for another example of this 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 Paul writes, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as a word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs this work in you who believe. Paul is giving thanks. Why does he give thanks? Because they received something. They received the word of God. But who is he thanking? Notice that. You tell me, who is it that he is thanking, according to verse 13? He's thanking God. Exactly. Why does he thank God that they received it? Because uh, left to their own, they won't receive it. They'll find it to be foolishness. And so he says that, I presented you, we came with a message, a word, and you received it not as the word of man, but as the word of God. Right now, I'm talking, I'm working you through the, these various texts, and I know that what, it, something's happened to each one of you. You're listening to me, and you're either saying these are Matt's words, and they mean nothing, or I'll accept what I like, or you are receiving them as the word of God. That's what Paul wrote. That they received the word, and they saw it as being the word of God, and therefore it brings out something It performs a work in them, it says at the end of verse 13, because they believe it. So why would anyone ever want in this room to bring from the wellspring of all of the wisdom of humanity something that cannot change a soul or a heart when the word of God is able to? Again, I ask you, what do you believe If you were Peter on that great day, and you saw all these people wondering and amazed and some mocking and saying, what's going on? Are these guys drunk? Would you have got up and preached? Do you in your life, do you believe this is what is true? Now go over just a few pages to 2 Timothy 3.15. Remember, in, in 2 Timothy, it's the last letter that Paul is going to write. In 2 Timothy 3.15, he says this, that from childhood you have known, what? The sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy was a man who was raised in, a, in a, an unequal home. His father was not a Christian. His mother was, and his grandma was. But what is it that converted his soul? Was it grandma and mom? No, it was the sacred writings. Grandma and mom were faithful to raise him on it. Even though dad was against it. Even though dad didn't believe it. Even though dad was not going to have anything to do with it. Mom and grandma were faithful. And they would bring little Timothy and they would raise him on the word of God. They fed it to him all the time. They didn't have him go off into this or that. They knew what would convert the soul. It was a word. It wasn't going to be them. They weren't going to pray him into heaven. But what they did know is that they had the one tool God has given to them that converts the soul, and that is the sacred writings, the word of God. And so he gives, they give it to him, and it led him to faith in Christ. Beloved, You can be an incredible believer and somehow never get around to raising your child in the word. You can be converted and love Jesus Christ, and yet somehow there's a breakdown between you and your son or daughter that you do not understand that the word of God is all that is needed in your home. And it doesn't matter what else you provide them. You can give them food and clothing and shelter and the best education, and you can prepare them for all such sorts of things for this life and forget to prepare them for the life to come. Your example is never going to be more powerful than the word. How many of you have maybe bought into that lie that that if they see you, that somehow they'll believe because they see you live a certain way? Beloved, that's not where the power of God resides. The power of God unto salvation is not in what you do or don't do. The power of God unto salvation is the word of God. Go to Hebrews. So a few more pages back to Hebrews chapter four. You know this passage. Verses 12 and 13, he says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Therefore, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's a parallelism that's not really obvious at first. In verse 12, he talks of the word of God. And then verse 13, he shifts from the word to the God of the word. That word sword really should be a dagger or a scalpel. It's, it's a term of precision. You're not hacking away, and that's what some people do is they just come running in and just start hacking away, quoting Bible verses, and they don't understand. That's not how the Word of God is used. It's used with precision, which means you have to have an intimate knowledge of it. And the only way you can have an intimate knowledge of it is that somewhere in your life, you begin to read it, right? But it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions What he is doing here is this. He is describing when he talks about uh, the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intentions, he's chosen those not to talk about the fact that there's a soul and a spirit in the person and which one's which. He's taking things which are inseparable and separating them. Do you get that? He is saying that the word of God can do something that nothing else can do. It can take that which is inseparable and separate it. And the point that he's trying to paint for you and make is the word of God and only the word of God can do that. Only the word of God can go zero right into your soul and show it for what it is. And only the word of God can go into the life of your children or your friend or your coworker and bring the light of the gospel to it. Too often, though, we are too quick to abandon the word as our tool when we are looking at our homes and exegeting them, meaning we're looking at our home and we're trying to determine what's wrong with it and what it needs. What it needs, beloved, is the word. Your job, you need to think about it in light of the word. Your nation, your finances, everything must come under the power and authority of God's word. But instead, what we are too often is we are simply practical atheists. We don't practice it. So, I just spent all this time trying to show you that the Word of God is the tool God has given to us. So what is our job? Well, go to a passage you probably don't go to often, Ezekiel chapter 3. It's in the major prophets, if that helps you, if it doesn't, sorry. Remember, Grayson's teaching through the minor ones, the short ones. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 27. I have 26 in my notes. That was a typo, 27. This poor prophet Ezekiel. He is being asked to do so many different things by God. They're absolutely distasteful. But the thing that you want to take away with this is that his central purpose is to proclaim God's message to a rebellious people. And so in chapters 1, 2 and 3 of Ezekiel, we have what's called the commissioning of Ezekiel to be prophet. He's minding his own business and then God raises him up and says, "You go to this people who are rebellious and you preach my word." What an intimidating call. How do you face an entire nation who will hate every word you say? What a life that he was given. He was given not a life of joy and luxury, but one of misery. You go to this people who hate me, but should love me, and you preach to them. So what is it that Ezekiel must do and grab hold of and never let go? It's this. Verse 27 When I speak to you, that's God talking to Ezekiel. When I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, what? Thus says the Lord God. That's what you're going to say. This is what God says and then say it. Thus says the Lord God. And then he goes on, he says, and he who hears, let him hear. And he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. It's really that simple. Whether it's in the pulpit, in your home, in your marriage, with your children, whatever it is, ultimately, when it comes to telling them life and hope, you must be willing to say, thus says the Lord. I remember when I came here early on, how some people were surprised because the thing that I kept saying, and they thought that maybe there was something wrong with me, was that I would start too many of the conversations like this. Well, the Bible says, well, the Bible says, well, the Bible says, well, the Bible says. How often does that convey your conversations? Well, the Bible says, and the Bible says... Are you convinced that your job is to say, thus says the Lord God? One last passage. Go back to Second Timothy again. Second Timothy. Sorry, I should have told you to keep your fingers there. Chapter 4, verse 2. Paul's last letter, as I said, he's going to die. He knows that he's just waiting to die. He's going to have his head cut off. And he writes one last letter, and it's this letter to Timothy. So he's not just chatting about the weather. He's not talking about the latest philosophy or the cool therapy. He is burdened that, Timothy, keep in mind that which is absolutely important. What would you say or hope you would say on your deathbed? What do you want to be known? I've sat on enough deathbed situations, and I have seen people do the stupidest of things. I've watched them gasping for breath, and then they crack a joke. It's like, what a fool. What a fool. Why would you, in your last breath, decide that a joke is what is needed? Is there not someone in that room that needs to hear what's true? Others have uttered invective and hate, and they slip off then into eternity. What is it that you have set in your heart? What do you want to be remembered by? Some of you are getting old. You may not know this, some of you young people, but we're all getting old. Have you been preparing your soul to die? Have you? What will you be known for? A bitter man or woman, angry and spitting, or a man or woman full of grace? Will you look at your sinning children and call them to repentance, or will you look at your beloved spouse? And remind them of the love of Christ. What will you say? Well, Timothy says this. I mean, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, preach the word. <laughs> Nothing else. Preach the word. That's our, that's our responsibility. Preach the word. Mothers and fathers, you need to do that constantly with your children. And that's not that obnoxious ranting. It is truly preaching what the Word says. Husbands and wives, you need to do this. We need to do it to ourselves daily. Preach the Word. It's so clear. It's so concise. You and I are to proclaim just one thing that God has given us, His Word. And that this will then define and confine you as you learn to preach the word. What it says you do, you do, and what it forbids, you don't do. The content of our preaching, the content of our teaching, the content of our instruction is the word. We don't mention it and then go wandering off onto our other subjects that we really think are important. We bring the word of God to bear, which means we have to know the word of God. That is the essence of what James says in his book. He says, prove yourselves to be hearers, not just hearers of the word, but doers of it, right? But the fool answers, or he says it this way, they hear the word, and then they look elsewhere for the real answer. And that's what we see, beloved. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. A massive crowd that gathers around, he stands up, and he preaches. And it's not a carefully constructed speech that's designed to manipulate them. It's a scripture-infused, scripture-informed message. And he does it without fear. He preaches without any vagaries. He doesn't hedge. He doesn't equivocate. He knows he's going to say things that will offend them. And he doesn't care. He's got to preach the word. And so he tells them what the word is actually saying. He says, what you see happening in front of you, the word tells us what it is. And then he tells them about Jesus, and he tells them about what the scriptures say about Jesus. He tells them about what Jesus did, and then he tells them what they did to Jesus, right? That Jesus came, that he became their sin bearer, but he also makes it brutal. He's like, and you crucified him. You did not accept him for who he was. You crucified him. And then he makes it even worse, and he tells them, and the problem is he didn't stay dead because God raised him from the dead. So the one you killed thinking you were dealing with your problem is back, and he will return to judge you. Peter is like Ezekiel. He doesn't care if they listen or don't listen. He just cares if he's faithful. He preaches, and then something happens for some of them, and they're convicted, and they say, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Christ. So he's just like Ezekiel. If they hear, let him hear. If they refuse, let them refuse. It's not his problem. That's God's. The one thing he must do is preach the word. Or as I say it often, preach the word and then just let the chips fall where they may. So what are we going to do for the rest of 2021 if the Lord tarries? It is my heart that we recommit ourselves again to that task as a church and as individuals, as households, to be a people who are of the word and only the word. Let's pray. So Father, I do pray that we would... Examine our souls as to whether or not we really believe the word. Is it really given to you and is it without error and is it authoritative and is it able to convert the soul? Father, that moms and dads, young ones and old ones in this room would again remind themselves that this is where we are to find ourselves every day in the word. Convert our souls toward that. Build us up in the word Allow us to become more conformed through it into the image of our beloved Savior. Take the one who does not know Christ here and let them be convicted. Let them see and to know that in Jesus comes life or judgment. And let them flee to Christ for salvation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and how patient you are because we are but dust, foolish and prone to wander. Thank you for the Spirit who continues to protect us and keep us safe until that day of redemption. Let us walk in that truth in your Son's holy name. Amen.